The Holy Gospel according to Luke, the sixth chapter. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people, from all Judea, Jerusalem, and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all in the crowd were trying to touch him, for power came out of him and he healed all of them. Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, revile you, and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what their ancestors did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, for that is what their ancestors did to the false prophets. The Gospel of the Lord. For most of my life, Dr. Michael King was my dentist. His office was within walking distance of the house that I grew up in. I remember him to be so kind and gentle and his staff so warm and friendly, so much so that I continued to see him long after I grew up and moved away, even though that meant a long drive across the city. I trusted him so much that I brought all three of my kids to him. My son was five or six years old, and we were there for a cleaning and an exam. When Ian refused to open his mouth, they called me into the room to see if I could calm him down and persuade him. I walked into the room, I reassured my son, and I promised him that Dr. King wouldn't hurt him. I said something like, it's okay. Really, Dr. King is very gentle, and he's just going to look. The dentist interjected, That's right, I am not going to hurt you. While tears welled up in his eyes, Ian looked to me for confirmation, and I said, I promise you, he won't hurt you. Dr. King said he won't hurt you. And then for effect, I added, and Dr. King doesn't lie. Without missing a beat, Ian looked up at me and asked in all earnestness, but do you? <laughs> it was a reasonable question coming from one who was desperately trying to figure out in whom could he put his trust. But even more than that, it was a universal question asked by people of all ages in all kinds of situations from the very beginning of time. Though the words might be different, the question has remained the same. It makes me think about Abraham, chosen by God to play a role in fulfilling God's plan of redemption. 
In the 15th chapter of Genesis, we read that God made a covenant with Abraham, marking a very important and significant turning point in history. God was at work redeeming, reconciling, and restoring creation to its intended divine design. The Bible tells the story like this. God said to Abraham, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them, so shall your descendants be. Verse 9 reports that, and I quote, Abraham believed the Lord. Then God promised Abraham land, saying, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land, to take possession of it. To your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt all the way to the great river, the Euphrates, and everything in between. And do you know what Abraham said to that? He asked, and I quote, O sovereign Lord, how can I know that I shall take possession of it. Again, it seems a reasonable question coming from one who's trying to figure out if God can really deliver on his promise. But more than that, it is that same universal question, oh Lord, how can I know? How can I know for certain? How can I know that what you have promised will in fact be so, that you will do what you say you will do? All of this makes me think about what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. John 3.16 perhaps says it best, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son so that whosoever should believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That famous passage tells us, reminds us, and assures us that the redemptive and reconciling work of God begun in Abraham is finally completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who died for our sins, in order that we might be restored once and for all into a right relationship with our good God. The Bible makes it clear over and over and over again that the redemptive work of God is the only thing that is necessary and that there is nothing that you must do. There's nothing that you can do to earn it or to merit it or to urge it along. It's God's work, and God's work alone, done on your behalf out of pure love and grace. The Apostle Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the work and the gift of God. It is not the result of your work. Again, your salvation is not your own doing. It's God's work. And yet sometimes, sometimes our doubt gets the best of us, driving us to wonder and to ask, really? How can I know for sure? And then, because we can't help ourselves, 
We get to work. We consider all of the things that we might do that would please the Lord. We take charge of our own salvation, and we do what we can in hopes of guaranteeing that we have earned God's favor and will at last receive forgiveness and life eternal. In the first reading for today from Jeremiah, the prophet declares, Blessed are those who trust in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. We want to proclaim, yes, Lord, I trust you. But in the very next breath, we begin to second-guess ourselves, wondering, is my trust enough? Is it pure and genuine and full and complete enough? Putting our trust in the Lord may very well be the hardest thing we have ever been asked to do. Today's gospel reading from Luke is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and his words before us today are known as the Beatitudes. Blessed are you who are poor, who are hungry, who are weeping. Blessed are you who are hated, excluded, reviled, and defamed. And woe to you who are rich, who are full, who are laughing. Woe to you who are well-spoken of, well-liked, and popular. It is both tempting and at the very same time dangerous to read into these words of Jesus a choice or a decision that you are being invited or asked to make as if we could just will ourselves to be poor and hungry and grieved in order that we might count ourselves among the blessed. Hear this. The Beatitudes are not a to-do list any more than they are a multiple-choice question. Rather, they are a description of God and who we are in relationship to God. Let me say that again. The Beatitudes are a description of God and who we are in relationship to that God. The key to understanding the heart of the Beatitudes lies in recognizing that the blessing rests upon those who stand in need of God and all that God provides. They are the poor, the hungry, the grieved. They are the dependent, the recipients of the gifts of God. They are the reliant ones. And the woes, they rest upon those who have no need of God, for they are rich and full and happy and popular. They are self-sufficient, well-satisfied, and accomplished. In other words, they believe themselves to be self-made. So where does this leave us today? What are we to do, we who doubt and struggle to put our trust in God and in God alone? We pray. We show up before God just as we are with all of our doubts and all of our strivings, with our uncertainty, and with our deepest desire to put our absolute trust in God. We show up exactly as we are. 
I close with this prayer written by Thomas Merton. It's been called by various names, including the Merton Prayer and the prayer anyone can pray. But I like this title the best, The Prayer of Unknowing. Let us pray. My Lord God, I have no idea where I am going. I do not see the road ahead of me. I cannot know for certain where it will end, nor do I really know myself. And the fact that I think I am following your will does not mean that I am actually doing so. But I believe that the desire to please you does in fact please you. And I hope I have that desire in all that I am doing. I hope that I will never do anything apart from that desire. And I know that if I do this, you will lead me by the right road, though I may know nothing about it. Therefore, I will trust you always, even though I may seem to be lost and in the shadow of death. I will not fear, for you are ever with me, and you will never leave me to face my perils alone. Amen.